Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who selected us from all the peoples and gave us his Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. All right. You are up, my friend. Just like a small group, but it's probably only because we're usually so, so long. So this is, this is the intimate setting. This will be the time that we will uh, uh, be able to... off the rest of the guys. Most likely, yeah. How do you do my homework Yeah, well, you can come to class if you don't do your homework. Am I speaking? Yes. I know. Unbelievable. That was unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> All right, it is, uh, it is uh, March the 8th. 2011, and we're doing uh, the fourth lesson of First John. Uh, this is light. Um, and I know this thing is going to work this time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In the previous lesson, we learned that righteousness is not a term that normally refers to the heavenly court. What do I mean by saying that? That's a normally refer to the heavenly court. It's not to say it doesn't refer to the heavenly court, but it doesn't normally refer to the heavenly court. What is what is it in your mind? We set the stage with a with a parable, as it were, last time. This has been a month ago, a little over a month ago. Um, what is that heavenly court? What are we talking about? Remember, you you the sinner stands before the Almighty Judge of the earth, and he uh, he recounts. More importantly, actually, the, the accuser recounts all of the failures that we have had, sins. And uh, when all is lost, our defense attorney rises and says, he's not righteous, but I am. Okay? Is that, is that, is that the picture that we see in Scripture? Not exactly. Not exactly. We do see a forensic something, but there is something taking place in the court. I would say in that regard, it's the covering. Yeah, well, we are covered, uh, and it's not to say that that righteousness is not a part of the forensic court. Uh, the, the court forensic righteousness means that pertaining to legal, right? Um, so it doesn't mean that it, there is no legal stipulation for righteousness. There is absolutely, but that's not what we usually read about in Scripture. And why do I say that? We talk about righteousness, yeah? Mm-hmm. Because there's been a confusion that righteousness somehow covers sin. That's boy proves repentance. Exactly, boy, you hit the nail on the head. You can never. We, there's this sense that you have this great deficit, and somehow I have to rise to the level. And so, in even in even in great conservative pulpits, we hear people talking about righteousness as if it were we need such perfect righteousness as to atone for sin. No, no, never are we told in Scripture that righteousness can atone for sin. Ironically, the people that seem to have had the best understanding of atonement, I would question whether they do, but atonement, namely evangelical Christians, somehow mistake that. No, righteousness cannot atone for sin. 
So having imputed righteousness is not about covering sin. The only thing that it can cover sin is blood. Period. Amen. More importantly, actually let me rephrase that, because atonement is probably the misunderstanding. I was using it more in the, in the conservative Christian usage of the word, because it's not quite true. Because in the Torah we read that, wait, the grain offering can atone. A silver coin can atone. So apparently, blood is not only thing that can atone. What the blood does is it takes away sin. It doesn't just cover it, but takes it away. So you can never use righteousness as a covering for sin. You know, it's like, oh, all I got to do is get back to zero. You know, back to that balance. I got this big deficit. And if I can just get back to, you know, even, I'm okay. No. No, we want our sin taken away. It works on parallel tracks. You have sin that leads to punishment. They have righteousness that leads to reward. And that's exactly. And they don't cross over. That's right. And that's what they're. That's the confusion. Is it's been placed into the same bucket. It's as if we're pouring water into the same, you know, into the same glass, or taking water out of the same glass, as opposed to it being two separate glasses. Yes. Yeah. I was going to say that's where a lot of religious. Outside of Bible practices. That's right. Where people haven't done something all year long, and at a given point, they think that all their mistakes, that they can make it up here, that then all the rest will be covered for, when in reality, those good deeds are on a separate, as Josh was just explaining, on a separate area that doesn't affect those. Judaism is not immune from the same problem. Because Judaism does the same thing. Although, sometimes we misunderstand when we hear what some people say. An example is, when it comes time for Rosh Hashanah, people say, okay, uh, what is it that I'm preparing for for the great judgment, right? Yom Kippur, I have ten days, what is it? You know, Teshuv, I need to repent. My prayers, for my prayers to be heard, I need, you know... You know whether I whether I have kept the mitzvot or whether I have have uh, have have you know uh, prayed three times. If my davening is is acceptable to the Lord, then somehow somehow. But see, we hear that and we and we maybe confuse it because that's not always what's being said when they say those things. They're talking about a positive, but in a sec- separate glass, as it were, to sin. They are talking about getting God's attention. That's true. Yeah. One of the best examples of Judaism is the idea of um, God punishing or letting the righteous suffer for their sins in this life so they can experience reward in the next and the wicked getting rewarded in this life. Well, in the, in the traditional scale system, the wicked sins would be so much greater than their righteous deeds, they would get no reward at all. That's right. But the Judaism recognizes that every righteous deed does merit some sort of reward, just as every sin merits some sort of punishment. And actually, as believers, this is even more encouraging because if Messiah's death and resurrection pays for our punishment and then we're given his righteousness to merit the reward coming from him, then we get like extra bonus. And, and you brought up a great point. We're, we, we see this picture in Western civilization of justice being defined by a, by a scale. It's up or down. That's it. There's only two ways, right? Where does that picture come from? Is that a biblical picture? I'm not saying it's a wrong picture, but is it a biblical picture? No. It's not. Nowhere in scripture do you talk about the scales being being used in that way. Everybody's so concerned with trying to get back in black. And I think we had three people here. Yeah. One, of you, one of you went first here. Did you have something? Yeah. Okay. Did I miss somebody over here? Righteousness cannot cover sin. Only offerings can. Cover sin. Only blood can take it away. And it's only the perfect blood. That's right. That's it. 
You got it? That's very good. So, righteousness, we learned last week, is most often used in Scripture not to define forensic righteousness, imputed righteousness, but practical righteousness. Because how else can we call it? What else can we call it? How else can we come across First John when it says, he who practices righteousness is righteous. If you do it, you are. Not he who believes. And there's nothing wrong with believing, I promise. But it's not he who believes is righteous. It's he who practices righteousness. Or the, the effective prayer of a righteous man failed in much. Well, where, well, where are we going to find one? Yeah. Well, obviously it's, obviously it's just someone who's been imputed is what we'd be told. And our point is, it's not to diminish imputed righteousness. There's nothing can diminish that because it's, it's supreme. I mean, our righteousness is as filthy rags compared to Messiah's or, or Hashem's righteousness. No question. But we're not comparing our righteousness to them, him rather. We're comparing our righteousness to unrighteousness. This is so beautiful because this is a Torah throwing the bloody foreskin of circumcision, the bloody bridegroom verse. Look what is being thrown across. It's blood. Yeah. And in that sense, this fits the picture of something imputed. It's the blood of the Messiah that takes away sin, circumcision, picturing Messiah. Not righteousness being thrown across the room. So there's... there's Very good. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Which is more precise to what you're saying, which is it's really the blood that takes away sin. Yeah. A couple thoughts. Uh, The notion that it's, it's what you do, not what you believe. As I was taking the rabbi to the airport on Sunday, we had a lot of great conversation, but the... insight that he shared a year ago when he was here came up in the discussion again and the word emunah, faith or belief um, comes from a word or, or rather shares the same root with the word imunim which means to practice hmm. meaning that the whole root of emunah implies absolutely yeah. not 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 the absolutely yeah. so uh, and that is a powerful insight when you just kind of talk about it. the other thing that comes to mind is years ago this was even you know this was before we were involved with you know with Torah and so forth but we I remember doing a sort of an illustrated sermon if you will with with uh, with my kids and we or maybe this was in like a children's church or something but it was we we had the kids take a sheet of paper and list their sins, right? You know, so, oh, I, I lied, I, you know, whatever. So they make a list of all their sins, they write them down on a piece of paper. And then we had a um, tin, um, like a baking tin, that we put red tempera paint in. Yeah. And we had, after they wrote all their sins, we had them come up and they take their piece of paper and they had a little cup and they dipped the cup in the red tempera paint and just poured it over the paper. Okay. And as soon as the That's tempera fun. paint hits the paper, I mean the whole paper it turns all over the paper and then but you can't see any of it. I mean, so it literally yeah. covers to the point where you can no longer decipher what they wrote. And the, the point of the illustration of course was that is the blood, you know, in that it removes as removes yeah. takes it away God, God cannot see yeah. what the sin was once the blood was applied 
And this will finish up from talking about last week, although or last uh, last lesson. Although Scripture does speak of forensic, that is legal righteousness, it often focuses on the practical righteousness. Well, this week's no different. And when, I'm really astounded. You know, I've loved First John. I always loved First John. I've loved First John since the first time I read it as a little kid. But First John, uh, I've I've been astounded in looking at it anew. How. Uh, profoundly practical it is, how profoundly compelling to action that it is. Um, and uh, this, you'd think that we're going to talk about the ethereal, metaphysical, when we talk about light. But as it is, uh, that's not going to be true. Um, it's supposed to work. Because <laughs> uh, light is a religious metaphor. This is the problem. What we do is we get we get biased, we get uh, inoculated. This is the problem I have with religious jargon or f- common catchphrases is because we can use them to gloss over. So pretty soon the whole uh, meaning of what we're talking about is everybody assumes they know exactly the same thing and yet they're all applying their own little personal plugins to whatever's being said. So that when I use light, what do you consider? Not, not, not now, After, if you did the study, then you may not be able to answer this question less, less biased. But um, previous, previously, in a former life, if you talk about light. It had to be enlightenment. had to be enlightenment. Had to be enlightened. I, I have it's part of our English language, yeah. It's not just English. Western civilization uses the term enlightenment for what? Knowledge. Head knowledge. I'm glad you said it that way because we're going to talk about knowledge like two lessons from now. So it's we need to be very careful that we make a differentiation. What kind of knowledge is it? Is it the knowledge of relationship or the knowledge of information? We have a society that is that is um, not just not just compelled. I would say uh, even more so. I mean, driven by information. It's what I do for a living. I mean, it's so important. I mean, I believe in it as a great, powerful metaphor, enlightenment as information. But that is not what we're talking about. Uh, a common belief is also that, you know, light and dark are polar opposites, so that if it's not dark or things associated with it, oh, yeah. then, then it must be light. That's right. You know, so it's, you know, what's, you know, people are, you know, if you're walking in the light, then you must be doing something right. Right. Or even the devil can appear as an angel of light. So that would be the ultimate deception. I mean, light, obviously, is good, right? I mean, that's what we built off. The ultimate deception would be he comes, he appears as an angel of light. Have you ever considered the fact that it wasn't trying to make a point of being deceptive? Um, the problem is, and this is one of this, we, we all are, are guilty of this. So it's not a, it's not something we would pick on other people about. The problem is that when we when we fail to ask the questions, fail to ask the questions necessary that a diligent student must, we simply gloss over. We can do it no matter what you're studying. It has nothing to do with uh, what your background is. We do it a lot. Everybody can do it. That's why it's why it's so important that you learn to ask the questions. What do I mean by that? You know, what do I mean by this word? What do we mean? What did God mean when he when he inspired the writer to say this? Not what do I think that it means, or what did it mean? Even what did it mean to the hearers? Although that's important. What did 
What did he mean to convey? What truth did he mean to convey? Okay. So, what is light? It works, yes. Why does scripture use light to describe Hashem? How do we reconcile these passages? Let's read them. 1 John 1.5 God is light. In Him is no darkness. Okay, that's easy. Whew. Of course, that's exactly what we've always thought. How about 1 Timothy 6.15 B-16 through 16. He dwells in unapproachable light. Oh, of course. I mean, I saw this light. I mean, the doctor was trying to bring me back and I saw this beautiful light and I was, it must have been God. Right? I'm certain it was. That's what i got to figure out is how to keep this thing. But then there's this one. Exodus 20, 11. Listen. Actually, let me go up to First Timothy again. He who is blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. That's kind of the, ooh, too bright to see. But then Exodus 20, 21. So the people stood far off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. That's that an angry God of the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and and you have and you have actually hit hit the nail on the head. That's exactly the way. Yep, that is exactly the way it's described. But what is that? I mean, you know, it's like we've talked about darkness. What are we talking about darkness? Look at the plague of darkness we find in Genesis. You know, or excuse me, Exodus. That was a thick, tangible dark. Yeah, but Not so much you, just an absence of light. It was tangible. Well, is darkness absence of light? Is darkness absence of light? God created light. I knew the answers to this before I did this lesson. Okay. Now I don't know. Now I don't know. Okay, okay, let's go back to creation. God created light. Did he create darkness? No. But he he separated light and darkness. That's right. And what did he what did he create to rule? Sun and the moon and yeah, that's right. To rule the night. See, this is the, the problem is we look at it from a scientific or even a philosophical perspective and we think darkness is actually something that is the absence of light. Yes. I don't, I don't think that's true. What about the Psalms where it says that for you, darkness is light, is as light. That's right. There is no difference to God. You got it. But in thy light shall we see light. Very good. And from the, from the Shakarit prayers, that's beautiful. This, this is not to diminish light. This is a lesson on light. The point is that it is not... It is not merely. It is not merely a. Met, it is a metaphor being used. That's what we're trying to get to. It's a metaphor being used. It doesn't have any, you know, any significant meaning apart from the metaphor, except that in ways that we may not be able to recognize. Because when it says God is light, it doesn't say He's like light. <laughs> Mathematically, maybe I don't know. All right, 
So let's talk about Greek philosophy. And I have some stuff to read. Greek philosophy uses light, and this is where we get it from in Western, Western society. Greek philosophy, philosophy uses light as a metaphor for enlightenment. Uh, many theologians have fallen into the trap of using philosophy to define scripture instead of the other way around. I know Plato. Listen, let me tell you something. That's what we do in seminary. We start with Plato. <laughs> That's just ridiculous. We start with Plato, and then we go, oh, I wonder what it all means. Plato's cave analogy, I'm going I'm to read it to you here. And actually, this is, this is a description of the analogy, so it actually adds to it. It, it puts it in tangible terms, maybe. <clears throat> and I, I wrote it out for you. The analogy of the cave captures in a more dynamic manner the idea of knowing as a passing through various stages. There are four distinct stages which ultimately culminate in the, man's, in, in the mind's beholding the good. But in this analogy there is a more narrative structure which suggests the journey of the soul in its ascent to the good. The first stage depicts prisoners inside a cave whose bodies and necks are chained, so they are forced to stare at the wall before them. Behind their backs is a great blazing fire which casts light, and before the fire are artifacts which have been made in the form of real things like trees, animals, human beings. Shadows of the artifacts appear like puppets on the wall. And so for the prisoner's perspective, these shadows appear to be real things. For they are the only reality they know. Poor, confused people. Stage two commences with one of the prisoners suddenly freed from his chains. No doubt Plato, or maybe Socrates. <laughs> well, it could be Socrates, or Pythagoras even. Uh, we've got to go back far enough here. Uh, and so is able to turn his head around. At first, the strength of the light of the fire bur- blurs his vision. Over time, his eyes adjust, and he begins to see the artifacts and the fire behind them. This, then, appears to be reality. Okay, the shadows, but what's behind the shadows? That's reality. Stage three begins when the prisoner is dragged along the path that winds up out of the cave. Eventually, the prisoner arrives above the ground and out into the world above. He now beholds the daylight and his eyes are even more bright, bedazzled. Again, it takes, he takes time to, it takes time for his eyes to adjust, but he, but he does see reflect, the reflections of things such as trees, animals, and human beings as they appear in the water, the reflection of the water of ponds. At that he enters stage four, which he can look directly at the things themselves, the real trees, animals, and people. Finally, at the highest degree, he looks up into the light itself and sees the sun. In this way, the former prisoner is finally free from the illusions below and is able to see things as they really are. Of course, he's blind because he's looking at the sun. In fact, he pities... This is important. In fact, he pities the prisoners below who are still in the dark and see only images and imitations of real things, but not the things themselves. He's got the oh, this is the height of arrogance. <laughs> this is the blueprint for every cult. Oh, yes, yeah, absolutely. Stages of knowledge. And you get a mason. The cult of university. Yeah, yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Instead of teaching gone. unification, we teach diversification. That's right. Isn't the Greek word... Gnosis or gnosis or something. Oh, oh yeah. Isn't the, that the root for knowledge. Knowledge is one of the words for knowledge. Yeah. 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 Uh, gnosos, gnosos is, is one, and then you have uh, um, actually there's like several. Yeah. We're gonna look at those. Uh, having arrived at the enlightened state of philosophy, the man wishes he could remain in the ground in contemplation of the light of truth. But like Socrates, having pity on those below who are still in prison, however he descends back down into the cave, it is so dark that his eyes again need time to adjust and everything looks disoriented and clear. Although the returned philosopher tries to help the other see, he is not welcomed but ridiculed. 
those those fundamentalists are ridiculing me. Um, in fact, when he persists in revealing to him, to them their illusions, he ultimately is killed. For the people prefer to live in darkness than to make the, the difficult ascent into the light above ground. Does this not sound like the description of good conservative Christianity? Really? We're all martyred. We want to get people saved. You know, we want to get them out of the darkness. I mean, it's not a bad analogy, really, when you think about it. Or is it? Is it biblical? Is it biblical? Well, having having some knowledge of the truth and what? desiring to share it is certainly a biblical concept. Absolutely. We, we no question. No question. Realizing the truth is a person. Right. Yeah. Rather than, oh, wow. Okay, so what's wrong with the cave analogy? Uh, the shadows are, are a means of deception, and they're seen as bad. That's what I would say. Shadows are deception. Shadows are good. That's right. That's right. Shadows in Scripture are not bad. They show the outline. Right? Okay, what's another one? What's something else? This assumes that a person can know actual reality. Here's the point. Even though the, man, the prisoner is freed, how does he ascend in his levels? No, his, he does it. He does it. He achieves it. He's enlightened. Enlightened in a... Here's the key. Enlightened is a passive term. Think about it. Just the way the word is formed in English, but in its origin as well. It's a passive thing. But this even assumes that as in our human state that we're even capable of real enlightenment. Who's to argue that we might never be able, until the world to come, to really understand... Very good. Absolutely. Supernatural rebirth. Even after that. I'm saying, it, to yeah, stop, to stop it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, it, 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 the only one who knows, truly knows, is God. And anything that we achieve on our own apart from God is not knowledge, even though it may appear to be. That's right. I was going to say, I don't even know if it's passive enlightenment. Because you have the helping verb that's passive to be. But enlightened is just a description. It happens. It just happens. Yeah. yeah. Let me... But, Oh, no, go ahead. I say, the other thing is Isaiah 58 reminds us that mm-hmm. then your light shall da- dawn in darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. Oh man, I so wish I'd included that verse because that's a gray verse. Yeah. Is what you just read is that darkness is a bad thing, but this is actually saying, well, depending with whom you're standing or whom you're trying. That's right. Yep. Darkness can be a good thing. Now, not necessarily a evil as that is the Now, in the, in the analogy, the prisoner, as he's free, the philosopher, as he ends up, and, he, and he's, he's at this great state. <clears throat> what is the outcome of this analogy? He's killed. Uh, let's say he had stayed above ground and gazed at the sun. What's the outcome? Is there any relationship mentioned at all? There's a relationship with the other prisoners, that's true. He, he, he has no relationship with the animals. He doesn't approach the animals. No relationship with the water, the birds, the sky, nothing. He just gazes at it. It's nature relating to nature. Exactly. It but, it's, but it's gazing at it. Understand, it's all about information. He's seeing it. He's seeing it and he's making conclusions on the basis of what he sees. That wasn't real. This is. It's all just information. That's it. Nothing else. I would go so far as to say that you mentioned that there was a relationship with the other prisoners. I don't think there is. 
It's implied. It's more man for himself. Right. He's like, I, I feel pity for these people. It's, an, it's a swarm of arrogance. Yeah, they feel pity for orphans. And, and you know, they offer that. He went up and now he looks down. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I feel bad for them down there. Those people. Yeah, so, those poor people. So, to clarify then, we're, we're not saying knowledge is bad or we no. shouldn't pursue no. it. No. We want knowledge. The scripture clearly Absolutely. pursue knowledge. The point though is, is it is it knowledge in the form of just information? That's right. Or is it knowledge in the form of release? Understanding a Let's not go too far into knowledge because we're holding off to that. But yes, but information is is not what we're talking about. Knowing truth. The question is not what is truth. The question is who is truth. So for us... Actually, the question goes one step further. And what are you going to do about it? Yeah. <laughs> but to know truth in this case, it stops at this understanding a comprehension of it. That's not what we're called to in Scripture. No. In fact... Whether I know, understand God at all is irrelevant. That's right. It only matters whether or not I know Him. It's the same as the bumper sticker. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Right. That's not true. God said it, that settles it. It doesn't matter what, what you think about it at all. In the analogy, where is the action of the one receiving the revelation? In this Western thinking, this philosophical approach to light and enlightenment, where's the action? Well, I'll study harder. Right. I'll go to university. I'll get a master's. I'll get a doctorate. I'll teach other poor souls. I'll get a couple doctors. The action is, what role does God's law play in this? Is there any obedience required? No, it's all mindset. It's all mindset. Well, um, let's look at another perspective. I'm not saying it's right, but here's the Hasidic perspective. The Hasidic perspective has a different view of light. Now, it's not enough just to say that it's Jewish, so it's right. Okay? Because, frankly, that's not true. Everybody has some lie. But here's one of the questions we have to ask. Is the Hasidic perspective a Western perspective? And I think that if you read it, you know it's not. It's like, maybe a little weird. Okay, so it's not Western. Okay, so, but neither is... Neither is Hindu, neither is uh, what Hindu Western, you know. So just because it's not Western doesn't make it right either. Confucius says, you know. No, let's look at it. Um, it has a different view of light. It draws deeply from the Scripture, but it also draws from rabbinic sources. And this is what gets people and hangs them up. Maybe when they look at it or might consider, it. they go, "Well, of course they're making it up. They're just they're coming up with just another explanation other than the biblical one." Is that true? Let's see. Let's examine that. Maybe. One of my favorite guys, the Alter Rebbe, is Schneer Zalman of uh, of uh, I have it right here, Liadi, which I believe is uh, either Lithuania or North East Poland. Um, I'm not sure which one. He's known as the Alter Rebbe. He, he's called the Alter Rebbe because that means the elder the eldest, or the oldest Rebbe. Eldest Rebbe for who? For whom? Lubavitch. Lubavitch. This is the Lubavitch Rebbe. This is the first Lubavitch Rebbe. He's, a, I believe, a grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. Or a great-grandson. Grands, no, grands, grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. He's definitely steeped in Hasidic perspective. Um, however, this book that he wrote, it's called Tanya, uh, is how it's normally referred to, 
it draws from mystic sources like Etzchaim and the Zohar, which are not real practical books. But the Alter Rebbe tries to make it practical. He draws a lot from these sources. But his perspective is how to make it practical. Now, if you know the Chabad today, you know this is true. Is that like teaching Kabbalah to movie stars? <laughs> well, well let, let me just mention, we have to be careful how we use the word Kabbalah. Kabbalah means received. It doesn't mean magic. Kabbalah means received. That's all it means. So, uh, if we were to look at the apostolic scriptures, very much of the teaching of the apostles is Kabbalah. Because we receive it as given by God through a traditional means, these great ones that Yeshua has chosen as his own uh, to convey his message. So, that's Kabbalah. Uh, However, when we talk about Kabbalah in this sense, we're talking about received tradition. In other words, something behind the Torah. In other words, it's not obvious when you read it, but it's behind it. It's received. It's like, it's like the oral Torah. Same idea. Okay? It's given as a passed down from generation to generation. Which doesn't make it right, but doesn't necessarily make it wrong. Let's see. Um, the, the question that some people would have is like, okay, aren't you just, ex- aren't you just when you read about Hasidic philosophy, aren't you just exchanging Greek philosophy for another era? Why not just stick to the Bible? Why have philosophy at all? Which I would say, that's great. I agree. I agree a lot. So is it the same? Is Hasidic philosophy the same thing as Greek philosophy? Listen to this. This is from Lessons in Tanya, which is an English translation of Tanya. Tanya is extremely concise. Very concise. If you can ever find a copy, an English copy, that is a commentary on Tanya, it's far better. The reason why is because uh, the Alter Rebbe is, uh, as many sages, he's very has very few words. Uh, when you can get a five volume, my my copy of Tanya is five volumes. That's much better because it's expounded upon. Okay, he expounds about upon Etzchayim and Zohar, but he makes it practical. Here's what he says: uh, for the for it, that is the divine name, and the name specifically in this case is Elohim. Okay. What's the name Elohim? Immediately bring to mind? Creation. Creation. Conceals the supernal light that brings the world into existence and gives it life. So he's made the connection between creation, light, and life. Okay? And it appears as the world exists and is conducted according to the laws of nature. What's that mean? So he's built the world to run, recreates it every day, so that it looks like it doesn't take his action or interaction. Do you agree with that? All things hold together. Yeah, right? absolutely. Colossians first chapter. Yeah. So we, we and, 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 and news is creation daily. Last year or maybe two years ago when we were with Moshe brother uh-huh. New York, uh, one of the morning study times with Rabbi and other people uh, was on so how did these things and what holds things together and And you go, I know the answer <laughs> I, I, I just let, and then after a while I said, That's well, funny. You know it's written that I didn't say where. Uh, at that time it wasn't appropriate. Uh, but I got to share and they all were like, Wow. It was and I was quoting from Colossians. And, and and this and this is what and this is what the Alter Rebbe is saying as well. He's saying it in very few words, but he's saying God made it. So it looks like a clock, but it's not. He recreates it and sustains it. And how does he sustain it? He sustains it in light. Okay? 
uh, here's another one. It is known that the Messianic era, especially the period after... By the way, it, it, this Tanya's full of nuggets. I'm just pulling some out, okay? Uh, it is known that the Messianic era, especially the period after the resurrection of the de- dead, is indeed the ultimate purpose and fulfillment of, cre- of the creation of this world. It is for this purpose that the world was originally created. Amen. What was the purpose of the world created? For Messiah. That's right. That's it. Wow, that's, co- that's powerful stuff. Oh, by the way, I'm not endorsing Tanya because there's some weird stuff there too. <laughs> there's some nuggets. There's some nuggets. You take, you eat the meat, and you spit out the bones. And I'm sure that uh, the altar rebbe, the altar rebbe of blessed memory, would certainly say the same of me. It's like I'm spitting a lot of bones out. Uh, <laughs> here's another one. We have learned that man must not go four cubits while bareheaded. Why? Because the Shekinah. The divine presence rests upon his head. Therefore, every wise man has his eyes, that is, his interests, his concerns, and his speech in his head. And he's quoting from Ecclesiastes here. The light of the Shekinah, which rests and abides above his head. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna expound upon this. Is that the same thing as Greek philosophy? No, he's taken light and he said, listen, we're just talking about light as a, as a concept. What we really mean is we're talking about a creative God who recreates the world continuously. Why? For the messianic age. So he can reveal himself in the Messiah. That's pretty cool. That's not, that's not information. That's more than that. It's like I'm being compelled now to step beyond just information. I'm, compi- I'm being compelled to somehow respond to that. Okay? At the core level, he's talking about light being used as a creative tool by Hashem. And the messianic creation, uh, messianic cr- connection to creation. Remember light. We're going to get to John, first chapter, here in a second. And you're going to see the same thing. Light creation, light, and life being tied together. To the Chassid, light is not about information. It's about creation. It's about doing. In this sense, it's God doing something. But God did something and continues to do it. It's persistent. He did not create... He creates the world. Which Colossians teaches us that. And if you see the Rashid 1, then the end of Revelation, yeah. you see exactly what Tanya is speaking about, yeah. taking place throughout the entire Bible. Where did the Altar Rebbe get it? Where did he get it? Did he study Plato? Dark room. Crystal ball, crystal ball, pink Pink Sometimes Tanya reads that way too. (laughs) Light is not just an idea. It's not just information. It's about practical. Okay. Matthias Yaakov has a really cool, uh, like, thirty-second spiel on Hasidism and how it explains that everything in the world, everything in this life, has inner soul. That's right. It's really cool. It's very cool. So here's the here's the altar Rebbe gives us. Marvelous picture. And by the way, he's not alone. Uh, Hasidus, no matter which flavor you get, has this concept of man as a wick. Okay? Uh, so, uh, whether it's, you know, whether it's uh, um, Labavitch or uh, Breslov or uh, Rebbe Nachman, they all love this idea. Rebbe Nachman. Na, na, Nachman. The righteous man is a wick. Okay? 
The righteous man is a wick. Here's, here's what it says. Here's what he says uh, in Tanya, the Alter Rebbe again. Now when his eyes, speaking of the righteous man, his interests and his concerns are there, he must know that his light is kindled above his head. That this light is kindled above his head. The light that shines on his soul, that requires oil. For man's body is the wick that, reta- that retains the luminous, the luminous flame, and the light is kindled above it. And thus King Solomon cried out, Let there be no lack of oil above your head. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. This is Acts chapter 2. For the light over his head requires oil, meaning good deeds. And for this reason, quote, the wise man's eyes are in his head. That's from Ecclesiastes 2.14. What's the flame? The Shekinah. Similarly, the Shekinah does not rest upon a man's body, but is compared to a wick, except through good deeds. It's the Shekinah is the flame. And he goes into, I mean, there's a whole volume just on the, the connection between the wick burning the oil and how close the Shekinah is to it. And the color of the flame. <laughs> but that's that same thing. As intense of your deeds, his nearness. In one of Daniel Lancaster's uh, teachings, he was talking about the parable of the ten virgins, where the oil, oil, the oil is equated to its boat. That's right. Well, we're going to find out the Alter Rebbe didn't just draw from these scriptures. There's lots of scriptures, and Yeshua used them as well. Right at the beginning of uh, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, right before that, you don't hide your light under a bushel. That's right. Good deeds. Put it by your father's hand. Yep. You think this is a Western? You think this is a Western concept? This is not a Western. First of all, it's a little weird for a Western concept. We're so practical. We're like Plato. Instead, we see, we stare at the sun. Uh, no, this is not. This is not a Western concept. This is this is clearly an Eastern concept, which doesn't make it right. But we see he's already drawing from Scripture. He's, he's building upon Scripture phrases, and and the altar Rebbe like. Many wise men like to take little teeny, little teeny pieces and cram them all together. Now we call it a mashup, right? <laughs> this is not a concept from Western philosophy. It's from Scripture. Let's look at John's view of of light. This is where we spent most of our homework time. I know you guys did all these references. It takes a long time. I'm going to read them. If you want to read one, sound out. On the computer, this is real fast. It is very fast. Well, I, that's the way I did it. Now, John. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 9. I want you to notice the connection between light, creation, and life. Okay? In the beginning was the Word. Then we assume that's spoken, right? Right? Spoken words, the best kind. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. It may seem kind of odd to connect light and life there. But if you consider light as a creative, uh, uh, a creative tool, maybe not. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. You can see where the philosopher reads Plato and go, oh yeah, I know what that's all about. It's poor, ignorant, unbelievers at the bottom of the cave. 
There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came to bear witness, for a witness, to bear witness of the light. He's the philosopher. He's got to go back down into the cave. That all through him might believe. See, it's just about information. That's why we use a word, right? That's why you use a word. I mean, you do. When somebody asks you, are you sure? What do you respond? Well, I believe that's true. What does that phrase mean? It means I'm not sure. Could be. My recollection is, it's pretty bad when you think about it, the way we use the word. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. What's the true light? Who's light here? Who is the light here? Is it the same one as the Word? Later on, we're going to read in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Is the light here the same as the Word? Yeah. It's Mashiach. Messiah is the light here. Okay? So it's about enlightenment? Information? It's about a person. That implies relationship, right? We learned months ago that those it's been sages, a long time. <laughs> yeah, those same sages don't want young Jewish men to study the creation account. Because they may blaspheme. Why? Because it's speaking of Messiah. Yeah. Yeah. Or Halam. Or Halam. Yep. John 3, 17 through 21. Notice I didn't include 16. You knew that one. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the, that, that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light. Now does it say, hate all light? What's the, what's the correlation here? What's the metaphor being used? Who is the light? It's a person. It's not saying, well, you just want to remain ignorant. It's not talking about ignorance or enlightenment. It's talking about a person. Okay? For everyone, everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds be, should be exposed. Who exposes the deeds of the heart? Thoughts of the heart, brother. You don't come into the light. You come to the light. To the light. That's right. Ah. He who does the truth comes to the light. That's exactly right. He who know. He who does the truth. How do you do truth? I mean, I'm I'm really stunned sometimes when I read scripture and I I I ask those questions. I go, why didn't I not see that before? How do you do truth in the way that we think of truth right. as information, it's fact or not fact? Right? That's not what truth is. Truth is not fact versus non-fact. Just because somebody says, well, you can't say that. And we go, well, it's the truth. What are you saying? It's a fact. It's not the truth. It's a fact. What's truth? Here it says, he who does the truth comes to the light. Okay, well, now I know that. If I come to the person who represents light here in this case, then I do truth. Well, that's cool. It's a little bit better. <laughs> Could the, the opposite be true? If you come to the light, you come to truth or something. Well, here's what it says. That his deeds may be clearly seen. 
So if you do truth, you come to the light so your deeds may be clearly seen. That, that they have been done in God. Not for Him, to Him, but in Him. Yeah. So here, here's here's this picture, doing truth. By the way, what is truth in in, in Hebrew? Emmet. John is a Hebrew. He's a Jew first, right? So he's talking about emet. Emet is also the root word for what? Emu emuna, faith, believe, belief. Amen. I agree. Verily, verily. Amen, amen. So does truth. Is this not what James is speaking of when he says that your faith without works isn't faith, it's dead? Of course. Faith is not just evidenced by works, it is totally tied up in works. They're inseparable. The Hebrews, the 11th chapter, those people are not admired for what they thought. Nope. Every time it talks about and he believed, and it, every time it talks about what they did. Yep. And uh, opposite to most people's thought that the faith is the spiritual part and the oh, yeah. works are not, if you look at how Yaakov James writes it, he says, Faith without works is dead, just as the body without the spirit. Exactly. And if you look at Romans 8, it says that uh, in other portions that only those who live by the Spirit can actually do the Torah. That's right, that's right. And it's really interesting when you see that part of Yaakov, that he connects the flesh with faith and the Spirit with works. Works are the spiritual aspect. And if, if, you, if you go back to Romans, what does Paul say? The law is spiritual. That's right. Yeah, yeah very good, very good. Wow, we're going long here. Hold on, i gotta, I got to keep going, you guys. Sorry. <laughs> John 8. Yeah, we're doing good, okay. John 8, uh, 12. Then Yeshua spoke to them, saying, again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Keep that. Light of life. Okay? We're going to get to this next week, or next week. I hope it's not next week. Next week. Next lesson with life. Okay? Then John 9, 4 through 5. I must, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Okay, stop for a moment. Let me ask you. Is, this, is he talking about after he dies and is resurrected? That's the way most people read this. Look, while you have me here, you better get working. He says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay, so when he's gone, we're going to we're gonna be working in the darkness. Later on, he says, we're the light. That's right. John 12, 35 says, Then Yeshua said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Speaking of himself, Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you might become sons of the light. These things Yeshua spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Walk while you have the light. By the way, I highlight in dark, in, in bold every time. Look at that. Creation, deeds, walk, work, walk. First John 1, 5 through 7. This is the message which we have heard from him. And I, I apologize, I didn't use the uh, Hebrew names, which I should have. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, doing something, right? We lie and do not practice, present tense, the truth. But if we walk, present tense, in a light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, with one another, fellowship, relationship. And the blood of Messiah Yeshua, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Walk in the light. It's doing, right? That was two. Yeah, he who loves abides in the light. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light. And there is no cause of stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because darkness has blinded his eyes. It's the opposite of the of the plate of Plato's story. I'm looking, I'm staring at the sun. Darkness has blinded his eyes. That whole love thing too, that's such a head concept too. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, it's like, I, I feel it, really. I have this powerful love. I love Apple. Okay, I love Dell computers. Just silly. You know, it's just silly. Actually, sometimes they think I do. Uh, Revelation 21, 23 through 24. The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine it, shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. The nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. Action. The kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. And then the last one here is Revelation 22. All these are John writing. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face. His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. Are we finally in Plato's, you know, glory? I'm outside and I'm staring at the sun. You can see where people come up with it. If you're not careful, that's right, if you're not careful. Please do. Please do. To you who fear my name, the sun, Shemesh, Hashemesh, of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like small fat cats. And, you know, going with the idea of sun, light, and righteousness all in that passage. That's right. And, and, and then that goes along with what you said before about, about, the, uh, about the affirmation of Israel. Arise, arise, shine, your light has come. Those who were in darkness have seen a great light. I love that word. Yep. Light among the Gentiles. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, Yeshua says he's the light of the world. And he also says in Matthew chapter 5, we're the light of the world. His disciples are the light of the world. Speaking as disciples. So which is it? Is there a contradiction? Is there a contradiction in that? Matthew 5, 14 says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they, hide a la- nor they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. It gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that you, they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now this gets really close to the Alter Rebbe's concept of man as a wick. The oil is the good deeds. And the Shekinah, the glory of God, is above our heads. And then, and then of course, Yeshua goes right into, I don't think I came to abolish all the prophets. No, right after that's that. right, right after that, yep. And then Matthew chapter 6, he says, Matthew six twenty two through 23, he says, The lamp of the body is the eye. I know a lot of people don't make this correlation, but just follow me on this thought. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. 
But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Therefore, the light that is in you is darkness. How great is that darkness? I've heard people say, you know, I could just look into your eye and know that you're full of light. No, you can't. That's not what it's talking about. What is it saying when it says, my eye is good? What is a good eye? In the Talmud, there's no question. And this is one of the things like, hello, if you read the Talmud, you'd get this. There's an evil eye. There's a lot of people have an evil eye. And it isn't about magic. What is the evil eye? That woman has the evil eye. What is the evil eye? The evil eye is stinginess, greed. So what's a good eye in the Talmud? It's a man who gives generously. Yeshua said, if your eye causes you to stumble, That's right. Gouge it out. We see the specific context of this Matthew six passage is in the light of uh, the light of um, your treasure being in heaven, and no one can serve two masters. So serve, you got to serve God or money. Yeah, yeah. And I think Psalms also uses this uh, good eye. It does. It does. Proverbs. Self-deception. The light you think you have is really darkness. How deep is that? I'm on the rest. I'm on the rest page. You think you have it, and really it's darkness. Yeah. And this goes back also to First John, and it says that he who you know doesn't love his brother cannot, and in fact, cannot be in light. Because that's what you have here. You know, these people, if the very thing that gives you light is, in a sense, generosity, it's like the the one thing that everybody can do. Then, if you're not even meeting that basic level of righteousness, then how dark is your darkness? Information or relationship. Proverbs 6.23 says, For the lamp, the commandment is a lamp, and the law is a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. So we get this concept. Again, this goes back, man is a wick. Matthew 5.14, again, You are the light of the world. The city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Who does it give light to? All who are in the house. You know, it's that idea, we've talked about this before. Sin is contagious. Righteousness is contagious. It is. It is. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Works what? Created beforehand that we should walk in them. It's what we were created for. You know, it's like, I'm sorry, there's only one purpose for a candle. It could just sit in the shelf and it's like worthless. Well, that's a nice candle. No, there's only one reason for a candle. To light it. The same way. One only reason for a lamp is to light it. The same way. That's our purpose. Light it. We are created for good works so that we can glorify the one who created us. That is the Shekinah, the glory that's over our heads. Isaiah four five says. Isaiah four five says, Then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion, above her assemblies, a cloud and a smoke by day, and a shining of a flame flaming fire by night. For all the glory there will be a covering. It's the picture of the wilderness, right? The Shekinah over man. It's the picture we see at, at, at Shavuot. You know, at Sinai. You know, the glory of God over man's head. You know, doing what? Because we respond to him, obey him, he's glorified. Just because of what we just experienced on Sunday, or the first day of the week, uh, that word for covering is chupa. Chupa. Yeah. yeah. Illumination is the result, not the purpose. And this is important. Illumination is the result, not the purpose. What is the purpose? The, 
picture of the the wick evokes words like cleave, love, and zeal. If I were to say, yes, I, w- I need to be a light to the people around me. I need to, you know, I need to bring people in, right? We're missing the point. Because that's just empty works then. What we want is we want the works of a relationship. I'm concerned with the Shekinah over my head. That's the reason for the oil. The, the concept of the oil and the deeds has just now brought light <laughs> to uh, Psalm 141 for me. Mm-hmm. Do not incline my heart to do an evil thing. So the oil is the deeds, right? Do not incline my heart to do an evil thing, to practice deeds of wickedness with men who do iniquity and don't let me eat of their delicacies. Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me in oil upon my head. Don't let my head refuse it. That's right. Still, my prayer is against their wicked deeds. Yep. That is good. Yeah, that, very good. This just the coin dropped for me on another issue, which is when you consider that no man seeks God, God seeks man. So if you're just always concerned about the one seeker that there is, then he uses that. So it's a simple obedience, not, oh, I've got to come up with a marketing strategy to go get these people. That's Plato. Uh, He's on. going back into the cave to save those poor prisoners. Yeah, yeah. 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 Go back down. I'm yeah. sorry, you're not taking me away from the yeah. light. However, I mean, what we say is, what's the consequence? Illumination. Yeah. yeah. But it, it, this is this is what this is why I want you to even if you say, hey, I don't ever want to read anything like Tanya. That's fine. But if you take this concept of the man as a wick and keep hammering that in your thoughts yeah. with regard to did good deeds, why? The purpose is to cleave, to cause the shekinah to cleave to me. I'm concerned because if I don't have fuel, he won't cleave to me. Right. Now we're not talking about losing your salvation. We're talking about we're talking about a zeal that wants Hashem close. And this is where, again, the altar Rebbe goes a volume in talking about the colors of the flame. And the zeal necessary for the flame to cleave to the wick. It never touches the wick, by the way. That you should know. Interesting. Flame doesn't touch the wick. There's always a gap. No flame in the wick can touch if the wick would live. That's right. If the, if, because if the flame, if the flame were, he does, he does a great job with it. If the flame were to touch the wick, it would consume it. Wait a minute. That's, why you <laughs> That's right. You can't be in the presence of a no. fire without a We have to have. Yep. Yeah, yeah. But we need the we need the deeds as fuel. <laughs> I, I would love for us to look at also another word uh, that would be great up there is fear. Fear. Of course. I mean, by the way, if that flame gets too close, that should cause you to be afraid. Notice what happens if you run out of fuel. Two things happen. It does consume the wick or it goes out. Both of which are really not fun. Not fun. Yeah. This is just really elementary compared to what saying so far, but I'm just astounded at all of the how simple a lot of these metaphors and how we made it too difficult. That's right. Yeah, how you know just oil and lamps, you know, marriage, relationship, shepherd, sheep. It's pretty simple stuff. It doesn't take a philosopher. It doesn't take a philosopher. You know, if, if we could just strip away and see 
how simple it really is, a lot of these things will just come to light, as it as were. <laughs> I didn't plan it. Alright, the commandment is a lamp. That's true. Let your light shine. And Isaiah 4, uh, 4 5, this idea of the chupa, of the flaming by the flame by fire by night and the cloud by day. Job 29.3 says, When his lamp shone upon my head, and when by his light I walked through darkness. So, conclusion. Talking about relationship. The choice between information and relationships easy. Man always wants information. Because there's, no com- there's no commitment. Tell me about God. Give me a great sermon. I can feel better about where I am. Okay, it may hurt a little bit, but I'll change my mind while I'm sitting there. I'll agree with you. I I never thought of that. Okay, now I agree with you. By the way, that's us right now. Okay, I agree with you. I feel better about all this now. Okay. What are you going to do about it? Ah, that's the key. You know, that information is insufficient. It's the ultimate. It's, in fact, it's the worse than insufficient. It's a, it's a, it's a drug. It lulls us to sleep. Exactly. It's the most insidious and sophisticated form of the exchange. Roman talks about it. Romans one. Paul talks about between exchanging the glory of the immortal for the image of the mortal. That's right. It's the image of the mortal is knowledge. Yeah. You know, it's the, the intoxicating part that's so insidious is that you sit, you hear, you agree, you acknowledge, but now that you know. It's worse. You're worse off. That's right. And then you're still not doing something right, and you know. Yeah. It is not Hashem's way to simply convey information about Himself. My goodness. Look what He's done for it. My goodness, I have no goodness. Look what He's done for us. Look what He has done to achieve a relationship. This is, the, this is the marvelous thing. Going back to this picture of the wick and the flame. The marvelous thing is the flame has sought the wick out. Right. That's it. It wants to rest upon the wick, the flame. This idea of light, the biblical usage of light, is about relationship, not information. It's about deeds, not thoughts. The commandment is a lamp, and the law is a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Next lesson is about life, and how we bring this connection. Because John is... I love these key words, but he's not just trying to come up with some great theological points. He's always driving us back to the main point. And it's practice. It's continuous practice, not stopping. All the parables, same thing. What are you going to do about that? That's right. This, uh, this brings the remez here. If you want. Uh, I'm thinking of Havdalah, right? And what is one of the, what's the third thing that we bless, the third item that we bless. The light. The light. The candle. The separation. And we say, you know, blessed are you, Lord, our King of the Universe, who creates the illumination of fire. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah. And if I recall correctly, that the tradition of the of, the, of that candle, because it's a single candle, but it's multiple, multiple wicks, right? It's it's a picture of a torch, which in the Hebrew is the word lapid, mm-hmm. um, and it 
somehow it's connected. And I, now, now I've got to go back and read and study this now. Another thing other than wells. There's a connection back to uh, during, in the time of the judges when you had Deborah, yes. the wife of Lapid, the wife Deborah, who is this uh, prophetess, if you will, and she's the wife of his name is the Torch, and she's like this shining light, you know, to the to the nation. But anyway, there's it just made the connection there that 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 torch, the wick, the multiple wicks, you know, there's so much meaning there. And this yeah. is this is really pulls all together. It's cool. Anything else? We went real long. No, it's we Okay. The dominoes are still falling. It's a great yeah, That's okay. Now, if you just if you just keep in mind this wick and just just let it. Yeah. And I've been mulling it for a while. And that's why I, it's one of the believe it or not one of the main reasons I wanted to do First John was this wick idea. It's like wow, that's just so powerful. And that's what you know. Is that what John's talking about when he talks about light? Man, what a great concept. Yeah. Yeah, it is really intriguing to think that that a relationship with with the Almighty can be so defined as I'm the wick the works that he's created for me to walk in are the oil and he's the flame